Hello and welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. Today I'm going to continue my discussion of speeches in the book of Acts uh, with a discussion specifically of another speech by Paul. Remember the last time I was discussing the question of whether the author of Acts made up speeches despite his high level of Greek <clears throat> and the plausibility that he was uh, pretty well educated he doesn't seem to have decided to avail himself of the uh, permission that some ancient authors thought they had to make up speeches. <clears throat> and if he didn't, how much the less for other authors who were um, much less educated in Greek and Roman uh, language and literature and so forth. So what we talked about last time was two speeches by the Apostle Paul where he tells of his conversion. That's in Acts 22 to the angry crowd um, in Jerusalem and then before Festus and Agrippa in Acts 26. And we saw how there are these subtle differences in the way that he does it that are um, evidence of what Paul himself said of himself when he said I'm all things to all men that he he was clever in appealing to a particular audience and I think that that is that is evidence that the author of Luke is recording what Paul actually said now today I'm going to be talking about Paul's uh, farewell speech to some men who were the elders of the church at Ephesus when he was on his way to Jerusalem for that last time in Acts, he summons them to a place called Miletus, and he had been uh, in Ephesus for quite a while previously. He'd had a ministry there for about three years, which he mentions here in the speech. And he, he gives them quite a stirring farewell speech. I, I think the author of Acts shows that he was with Paul at the time in various ways and I think he actually heard this speech. I would say that this speech probably in some places actually has Paul's, you know, exact words, ipsissima verba. You know, we'll often say, um, now look, it's, it's not like they're making it up if they sometimes paraphrase as long as it really is paraphrase and not just some kind of big extrapolation, hey, I'm going to make a whole speech out of one phrase, or I'm going to make up a phrase that this person, a saying this person never recognizably said. There are uh, much stricter limits to the use of the term paraphrase when we're talking to one another and we don't want to be uh, misleading each other than what some scholars use. But in, in this case, I think we're getting really close to Paul's own exact language. There's nothing to prevent the uh, author from doing that if he was present or had an excellent source who was present. Now I'm going to be paralleling some material that's uh, already been gone over even in video form recently by Eric Manning of Testify on the unity of the personality and character of Paul in Acts and Paul's epistles. So I'm going to try to link that in the show notes and I hope you'll have a look at that. Um, I'm just coming at it from a slightly different angle and including some details of language and so forth that um, some of which I had in the mirror or the mask, some of which I don't think I've ever mentioned before. Um, 
So I think that these videos will complement one another. So I would encourage you to read this whole speech. I cannot do full justice to how much it sounds like Paul without reading the whole thing. It's um, Acts 20, 18 through 35. And just read it to yourself in, you know, any, any good close modern translation. And if you're familiar with Paul's epistles, I think you'll just you'll recognize the, the Pauline spirit and personality and language here very strongly. So I'm just going to be able to highlight some things. One thing, which Eric also uh, touched on, is that Paul is very inclined to use his personal relationship with people <clears throat> to bind them to Jesus. And I mean, that, you know, you could say that's a dangerous thing to do, but it's something that Paul does. So a, a classic example of this in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 is where he says, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that he's saying he's perfect. Uh, in fact, he'll explicitly say that he's not perfect, but it does mean that he's expecting them to see something very Christ-like in himself. And he wants them to follow Jesus partly because of what he has taught them and the way that he has been an example to them. Um, in one of the parts in that video, um, Eric said that, it, I believe it's in Galatians, Paul is giving them the disappointed dad treatment because some of the Galatians are considering being circumcised as Gentiles, which Paul thought would be wrong for them to do as Gentiles. Um, as a, as a religious exercise. Um, we find it in, in a number of places. So um, the, we find it in Galatians where he talks about, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that my efforts for you might have been in vain. That's Galatians 4.11. Um, as I already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Um, and he talks here about in this speech, it's it's all through the speech, really. He says, says, you know, you yourselves know what I was like when I was with you. You yourselves know what I was like when I was with you. Um, this is what what I was like. This is what I was like, and therefore you should um, you should continue on. So, for example, he mentions his working with his own hands. Um, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men that were with me. He's been talking about his three-year ministry with them. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We actually don't have that particular saying of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. <clears throat> it was apparently an oral tradition. But you see that connection. You know, follow my example in giving to those in need and working hard. And then this is also what Jesus said. Um, there's an undesigned coincidence there. If you watch one of my earlier videos, which I'll try to remember to link in the show notes, I emphasize that Paul wrote to the Corinthians um, when he was in Ephesus. And we can, we can place that very precisely. Uh, it's just really striking to a, a verse in Acts 19. Um, by clues from 1 Corinthians. And 
here he says to the Ephesians, talking about his time in, in Ephesus, you know that I was working with my hands. Well, in 1 Corinthians um, 4, 11 and 12, he specifically says, up to this very hour, we are working with our own hands. Okay, so he's saying that while he's writing, when he's writing the epistle of 1 Corinthians, he's supporting himself by his own labor. And here he says, you know that when I was with you, I supported you with my own labor. You yourselves know, speaking to the elders of Miletus, um, he's at Miletus, they're the elders of Ephesus. So in, in both places, it's confirming that he was supporting himself in Ephesus. Um, interestingly, although Acts mentions his supporting himself in Corinth, it doesn't explicitly mention his working to support himself in Ephesus until here. It doesn't narrate it, though, while it's narrating that, that time period. So that's an indirect confirmation that he actually was supporting himself. And then he also uses that as an example, which fits with that idea of following his example. Uh, connected with this idea of binding them to himself are his mentions of tears. Paul does not uh, feel shame at mentioning tears, mentioning emotion. We find two mentions of tears in this speech. Uh, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me. And then again in verse 31, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So he's telling them to, you know, stick to what he's taught them, partly because of his tears. And this comes up in 2 Corinthians 2.4, where he says, I wrote to you, the Corinthians, with tears. Now there he's saying he wrote to them with tears with that sort of disappointed dad thing that um, there were things that were going on in the Corinthian church that he was unhappy about. Here it's not so much that he was disappointed in the Ephesians, but just that he was a a burdened man you know he he really was he was so earnest and so sincere and he's admonishing them you know to to follow Jesus follow Jesus even with tears and um and and doesn't mind showing that emotion and then even even telling them about his own emotion so these mentions of tears okay I want to move on to some other very very strikingly Pauline language. Um, there is this mention of the the race. He likes that mention of a race and that metaphor of a race. So in the speech to the elders of the church of Ephesus, verse 24, just really listen to this and bear this in mind as I'm going to go on and read something in Philippians in a couple minutes. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So we find so many themes here. Uh, the grace of God, he received his ministry from the Lord Jesus, which he emphasizes in Galatians. Um, and that metaphor of the race. Also notice that he, he pivots, he has this transition. I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. That's a transition from what's been up in uh, 22 and 23, 
where he says he feels bound in spirit to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's been receiving warnings from the Holy Spirit that bonds and afflictions await him. Uh, it's narrated one of those that a, a person who was regarded as a prophet came to Paul earlier in Acts and said, you know, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. He actually like binds his hands with a with a girdle, a rope girdle. Um, and then he says, but I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So that, that transition, that wording. Now I want you to listen to Philippians. This is just really astounding. Philippians 3. Okay, beginning a little earlier in verses, I'm just going to summarize verses 4 through 6. He's been talking about how he might have confidence of himself in the flesh. He has all of these sort of credentials as a, a committed Jew, a good Jew. And so he's setting himself up sort of against these um, others who were trying to urge the, the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised. Um, and he's like, hey, you know, I'm as good of a Jew as they are. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a, a, a Pharisee and so forth. But then in verse 7, he says, but what things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Does that sound familiar? Just so similar. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Just hear that. I do not consider my life of any account as dear for myself, dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And then Philippians uh, 3, going to, um, he's been talking about the resurrection of the dead, uh, just a little later, same passage, Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All right in order that I may finish my course. Uh, we have that finish the course in um, 2 Timothy 4.7. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Uh, we find that metaphor of fighting and of racing in 1 Corinthians 9.24-27. Um, I run. I fight. Um, we find that metaphor of a race in Galatians 5.7 you were running a good race what hindered you so he likes that metaphor and that notion specifically of himself is just pressing on to the race notice that i'm combining here epistles that uh bart ehrman doesn't accept and epistles that bart ehrman does accept but if you're interested in that you can see that i believe for every theme i'm talking about here i have at least one reference where that theme or language of that kind is used in, in a quote-unquote acknowledged, universally acknowledged epistle. Again, that's not important to me, but if that's important to you, I'm just drawing attention to it here. That the Philippians language and the comparison to Acts 20:24 20, is just astounding. I had never noticed quite how close it was before I was preparing for this video. All right, the race, and then one more 
and not counting, you know, what was gained to me, I count as loss. I don't count this deer, etc. Um, then I want to talk about the blood. Um, this was drawn to my attention by reading Colin Hemer's book, uh, The Book of Acts and the Setting of Hellenistic History. Very excellent book. Um, look at Acts 20, 28. Again, this is coming from this, um, this speech, right, to the Ephesian elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Okay, uh, and Hemer points out it could be with the blood of his own. So it, um, it may or may not be a reference to the, um, it may or may not be a reference to the deity of Jesus, you know, God purchased with his own blood. It may be with which he, God, purchased with the blood of his own. But in any event, you get that theme of redemption, right? Um, through the blood, redemption through the blood. Those come together in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Um, Hemer notes that this notion of redemption through the blood and the blood of Christ is not what could even be called a Lucan theme. Um, I would point out, as far as I can tell, it's not found anywhere in the speech of Stephen in in this uh, in the book of Acts. It's not found in any of the speeches, as far as I know, of Peter that are given in Acts. And with the exception of the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper, it is the, the theme of redemption through Jesus' blood or Jesus' blood in a theological sense is not even in any of the um, teachings or discourses attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, if it were, that wouldn't be a problem. But the point I'm, I'm making here is that it's not, it's just not something that Luke emphasizes, and it's certainly not something that he puts, like, in everybody's mouth, okay? But he records it in the mouth of Paul here, and it is definitely a Pauline theme, the redemption of his blood. It's a very striking metaphor. We're so used to that as Christians, you know, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, uh, the, the concept of redeemed and blood, redeemed by the blood. It's in our songs, it's in our sermons and, and our banners and whatnot, but it's important to think of the fact that, that we get that from Paul. Um, Jesus in, in one place says, um, in, it's recorded in Mark, <clears throat> a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to give himself a ransom for many. So I'm not saying that it's contrary to Jesus' teaching, but I'm saying that specific use of that vivid metaphor of buying us back with his blood is very Pauline. Um, and here it is in the mouth of Paul, whom he has redeemed, the church whom he has redeemed through his blood. Um, and that's it's, it's everywhere in the Pauline epistles it, and related concepts. 1 Corinthians 6.20 you're not your own. You were bought with a price being bought. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Um, even when he talks about the church as the bride of Christ, right, which he, he, he washed and made clean to present to himself. And here he's talking about uh, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Um, related, maybe not quite the same, Colossians 1.20, he made peace through the blood of his cross. So that, that deep notion of the blood of Christ um, and the concept of being bought or redeemed. Um, 
is is just it's everywhere in Paul and here it is in this speech okay shepherd the church of God which he which he purchased with his own blood so I mean this is just such a Pauline speech and I really think it was burned onto the mind of of his hearers um, including Luke and and Luke may have even discussed it and gone over it with others who were traveling with Paul at the time uh, during during Paul's imprisonment it just it's so vivid um, I wanted to mention one alleged problem uh, here and I mean I would like to hope that skeptics would not try to say this is a contradiction with Pauline epistles because it isn't um, but in case you might hear it brought up Paul says to the elders in verse 25 and now behold I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more and that's one of the reasons why they're crying they they began to weep and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more and they were accompanying him to the ship now if you go to Philippians and even especially Philemon uh, which I believe were written at about the same time during his Roman imprisonment, what I would call its first Roman imprisonment. Um, and if you read my book, uh, Hidden in Plain View, you'll learn that um, I think that Paul did go back to Asia Minor after his uh, being captured, imprisoned uh, in in Jerusalem, eventually going to Rome. I think he had a first Roman trial and was released for a while and went back to Asia Minor. And he anticipates that in Philemon, he even says, um, get a room ready for me. I mean, he's, he's that hopeful that he will be released. And then I think that the uh, pastorals, as they're called, um, for 2 Timothy and Titus were written later. They were written after the end of Acts. I don't think that they fit within the chronology in Acts. Um, and that 2 Timothy was written during his second Roman imprisonment um, and that's where he says you know I've, I've finished the course um, so in other words it, that was only maybe seven years later something on that order so if all of the Ephesian elders didn't die in that six to seven years if Paul went back to the Lycus Valley which is where Colossae and probably Philemon uh, were located he would have definitely passed through that that seaport there at Ephesus and stopped and seen them so they did see him again so he was mistaken when he says I know that I will see you no more now as William Paley pointed out a long time ago that's not even any problem with a, 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 a alleged error in scripture so I'm not an inerratist but if some of my viewers are scriptural inerratists um, that doesn't commit you to thinking that Paul himself was infallible in everything that he ever thought or said, obviously. Um, you know, if, if Paul thought that, uh, you know, he was going to miss a ship and then he didn't miss that ship, then, you know, he was not infallible. I mean, that's kind of trivial, okay? Um, he's pretty confident here. He says, I know that I will see you no more. Maybe he thought that that was something God was revealing to him. But as you know, people may be not even always infallible about whether um you know they're getting this from the holy spirit or whether this is just something that they're 
um, their thinking and that seems strongly to them to be true. And I think this is a case where Paul doesn't say he's getting it from the Holy Spirit, I might add, but where Paul was really confident that he was going to die, understandably, with all of these forewarnings of bonds and affliction, and he knew there were plots against him and so forth, and that he wasn't going to see them again. Remember, he was hoping to go to Spain after he went to Rome. So he's like, hey, you know, probably going to die somewhere in there. Um, And then later changed his mind and um, was planning to go back to Asia Minor when he was released from prison. And that's fine. And Acts is accurate in recording what he said. In fact, if the author of Acts were basing his writing on Paul's uh, letters, I think it's unlikely that he would have put these words fictionally into Paul's mouth. I think he might have said, you know, I hope that I'll see you again or something like that if he was going to make up this speech. I think this shows independence from the letters and I think it also shows accuracy of the author. Um, Sometimes some skeptics will imply that Paul was basing, uh, excuse me, that Luke was basing acts on the epistles. But they will also often imply there's a contra- contradictions with the epistles. Um, and then they will leave themselves without a way to explain the many overlaps, like the undesigned coincidence I just mentioned concerning his working up to this hour when he was in Ephesus and then saying to the elders of Ephesus, you know that I worked with my hands. Um, but I think we have multiple lines of evidence of the independence of acts from the letters, which makes those coincidences and those overlaps and all of this that I've been showing you of this amazingly Pauline language, all the more powerful and striking because it's coming from an independent knowledge of the Apostle Paul and of what he really said. And I would say what he really said on this occasion. Next time, I hope to uh, talk to you about an alleged error or even invention in the book of Acts in a speech that's attributed to Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, and that alleged error concerns a man named Thutis. So I won't say any more about that right now, but this is relevant to the accuracy of the speeches in Acts. So I hope that I'll be able to do that next time. And thanks for watching and please come back.